Oh, this whole show is going to be just for Londoner. Of course it is. Aren't they all? Usually. That's why we talked about adding it to the teams. <laughs> we wouldn't even oh. have to stream then. Cast, the podcast for the Linux Mint community for all users of Linux. This is episode 388, recorded on Sunday the 29th of May. Spinning my wheels here, I'm Joe. Having entered the void once again, I'm Norbert. I'm still Moss. First up on the news, we have some GNOME news, some intel on Linux 5.19, the kernel gets even more rusty, Ubuntu loses its pulse, and Proton unifies. In security and privacy, Facebook has no clue where your data goes. Linux FX dumps user data where? Mozilla fixes a serious vulnerability. Then in our wanderings, Joe starts making videos. Moss's wife starts cruising. And Norbert starts his new laptop. In our inner section, we get some thoughts on Ubuntu 22.04. And finally, the feedback and a couple of suggestions. On to the news. Ubuntu 22.10 to switch to Pipewire by default and drop Pulse Audio. Canonical employee and Ubuntu desktop developer Heather Ellsworth has revealed plans for finally adopting Pipewire as the default sound system instead of Pulse Audio in the upcoming Ubuntu 22.10 release, codenamed Kinetic Kudu. The move to Pipewire by default on Ubuntu started with the current release, Ubuntu 22.04 LTS, Jammy Jellyfish, which ships both with Pipewire and Pulse Audio, but Pipewire is only used for screencasting and screen sharing on Wayland, while Pulse Audio is still being used for the audio process. In Ubuntu 22.10, Pulse Audio will be removed in favor of Pipewire, a move that is also confirmed by the recent changes in the Ubuntu Meta package. However, it remains to be seen if the Ubuntu devs also decide to adopt the Wire Plumber Session and Policy Manager for Pipewire. Now it's important to say that they are not removing pulse from the repos, they're just removing it from the the group. So when you install Ubuntu and you select either the Ubuntu minimal desktop or the complete installation, so those groups will not have post audio, but you can still go you can still go back to using pulse. And force it to use pulse instead of pipewire. I'm not sure, but but you can you will likely be able to after you install just install Pulse Audio, which will remove Pipewire Pulse. And on Wire Plumber, I think they should, because Pipewire has a default session manager. I think it's just called Pipewire Session Manager, but it's not meant to be used. It's just a, a, a sample. Okay. On to the next story, Norbert. We have some new updates on the GNOME development for GNOME 43 and some new GNOME Circle apps. This is from the This Week in GNOME blog. There's a line about the GNOME software app 
that now lets you install and update applications and system extensions. Now I looked at the pull request. There wasn't really any mention of the of extensions. At least I couldn't find it via Control F. So, I mean, it says system extensions. I assume it means that you will be able to search and install GNOME extensions, shell extensions from software. Which, if it's true, it's it's great. But I'm not really sure what it, what I mean by that. There's also a couple of new apps, a new circle app called Warp, which allows file transfer from one device to the other by sharing a code. So I imagine it's, some, it's something like AirDrop for, from Apple, but maybe via QR codes or just copy pasting a code. And there are a couple of new third-party projects that are not in the GNOME Circle apps, but are interesting. One of them is Telegram, which is a GTK4 Telegram client designed for GNOME. There is no, it's not on FlatHub yet because it's in a very early stage. I think you can install it in in a way, but it's also in the AUR. So if someone wants to try this and they're running Arch, it's in the AUR. There's also a new release for the Emerald music player, which as it says, it plays music and nothing else. And I find, I think it has a really very intuitive interface based on the screenshot it it changes the entire uh, the color scheme of the entire layout based on the album art and i just like nice looking apps and there's also crossword which is a simple crossword player and editor and i don't know if have we covered the 2d gestures already the GNOME devs are also working on two-dimensional gestures touchpad gestures which means instead of if you want to switch a new workspace and then open up the activities view, you would do a horizontal swipe and then a vertical swipe. But if they implement uh, 2D gestures, you will be just able to uh, like a diagonal swipe from the bottom right to the top left. And it will, in one move, it will switch to workspaces and open the activities overview, which I think it's it, it's a more natural feeling way to navigate GNOME. And I they have a demonstration video uh, which shows it being used on a touchscreen. Uh, which I'm really happy about because I'm using GNOME with a touchscreen. So I think that should be, that will most likely be one of my most anticipated features in GNOME 43. If it gets done by GNOME 43, which I hope it will. That does sound cool. Moss? Okay, Linux 5.19 will be super exciting for Intel customers. From Pharonix, Linux 5.18 was christened as stable today, and that in turn will mark the start of the Linux 5.19 merge window. Based on the Tech Next activity, here is a look at the many changes expected to be merged for Linux 5.19. Linux 5.19 is set to bring more Apple M1 enablement work upstream, is particularly heavy on upcoming Intel CPU GPU hardware enablement, has some AMD changes like SEV SNP finally being upstreamed, performance work on XFAT and other file systems, Z standard compressed firmware support, and much more. On the AMD side, there is also more RDNA 3 enablement work landing in preparation for the Radeon RX 7000 series graphics cards launching later this year. Always happy to hear about more Apple M1 support. Sure, I mean, we're all going to run out and buy one, right? Mm-hmm. But no, it's still good to have. I'm happy about hearing news about uh, compressed file system support because I know that a lot of these that use ButterFS just have the standard compression on by default. And I've heard that people say that it, it doesn't really impact uh, performance, that it's really fast. And it makes you think, 
because you have like uh, compressed archives that you download and you have like snaps which are uh, packages that are compressed by default and if we have if we have a really good uh, support for and widespread adoption of compressed uh, butterfs file systems then maybe all of the compression that can be done should be just left to the file system and i mean long term i'm not just talking about linux maybe this will be a standard probably not for downloading files because they have to be compressed on the servers but uh, maybe the thing about one of the thing about snaps is they're slow to start because they have to be copied to ram but they also have to be i'm sorry for, for bringing sub snaps again but it, uh, it uh, just came occurred to me that this is important so one of the things that is a button like for loading snaps is uh, they have to be decompressed but maybe if in the future snaps won't have to be compressed because the file system that is hosting them will itself will be compressed maybe that would be one way to improve the snap loading time just an idea so if you want to went for to adopt butterfs by default maybe that would improve snap performance just an idea okay Rust for the Linux kernel updated. New utils as Rust version of core utils updated. And this is from Peronix. While not marked as a pull request yet for maintaining to the kernel, Miguel Ojeda sent out the seventh iteration of the Rust patches for the Linux kernel that add in the infrastructure for building Rust code in the kernel. Separately, version 0.0.14 of U utils was also released which is the Rust written replacement to the GNU core utils. This new version fixes Android support and has many fixes and compatibility improvements throughout for contained commands like MV, Chone, DF, CP, MKDIR, and STAT, and other common core utils utilities. It seems fairly straightforward. So the way I understand it, these uh, Rust core utils, so as, or as I'll take into calling this Rust slash Linux, is still in a very early stage. But I wonder what distros will adopt this, because it's good that this is an option, and in the in the long in the long run, it it will be most likely beneficial. But the because so far all the distros that use the core utils, the GNU core utils. Uh, will they have a reason to switch to this? I don't know. I guess if it's slightly faster. But I, I've heard somewhere that Ra- that Rust is not known for it being fast, but it being uh, memory safe. So it uh, will be more likely just more secure. Which might still be a very valid uh, point to selling point. Hmm. Then maybe we'll see it on tails. I say selling point, but it's 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 free. <laughs> Someone dumped a bunch of water on the kernel and it's getting rustier all the time. I, I just spilled my water that was drinking, so maybe that's why. I actually did. Okay, Moss. Proton Mail is now just Proton offering a privacy ecosystem from its FOSS. Proton Mail is rebranding itself as Proton to unify all its offerings under a single umbrella. There will no longer be a separate product page for Proton Mail, Proton VPN, or any of its services. 
Instead of choosing separate upgrades for VPN and mail, the entire range of services will now be available with a single paid subscription. This also means that the pricing for the premium upgrades is more affordable with the change. There is a new Proton Unlimited plan to offer all the services for a single subscription. I've got mine. I don't have an unlimited, but I've got paid plans. So. I haven't used Proton Mail yet, but I might just try it because I, I have tried. I mean, I'm not using it, but I tried it. And I really like the the layout, and maybe I should try put Proton VPN as well. Well, at this point, when I got the upgrade, I also uh, deleted my phone app and uh, reinstalled because there was an update of that. I just installed a new one and I can't get logged into my mail on that new app. So I have let them know I can log in on my phone through Firefox, but not through the app. And I did notice that since I've enabled beta, uh, they do have the beta of Proton Drive available to me, which I haven't tried yet. Okay, moving on to security and privacy. All right, uh, Facebook leaked documents states that they have no control over where your data goes or what they do with it and cannot commit to regulatory requirements. This is from vice.com. I've just grabbed a bunch of quotes here. Uh, quote, we do not have an adequate level of control and explainability over how our systems use data, end quote, Facebook engineers say in the leaked document. Quote, we built systems with open borders. The result of these open systems and open culture is well described with an analogy. Imagine you hold a bottle of ink in your hand. The bottle of ink is a mixture of all kinds of user data, third party, first party, sensitive content data, European, etc. You pour that ink into a lake of water, our open data systems, our open culture, and it flows everywhere. The document read, quote, how do you put that ink back in the bottle? How do you organize it again such that it only flows the allowed places in the lake, end quote. The document, and there's a link in the show notes, was written last year by Facebook privacy engineers on the ad and business product team, whose mission is, quote, to make meaningful connections between people and businesses, end quote, and which, quote, sits at the center of our monetization strategy and is the engine that powers Facebook's growth, end quote, according to a recent job listing that describes the team. Quote, it is a damning admission, but also offers Facebook legal cover because of how much it would cost Facebook to fix this mess, end quote. Another former Facebook employee stated, quote, this document admits what we long suspected, that there is a data free-for-all inside Facebook and that the company has no control whatsoever over the data it holds, end quote. Johnny Ryan, a privacy activist and senior fellow at the Irish Council for Civil Liberties, told Motherboard in an online chat, Quote, it is a black and white recognition of the absence of any data protection. Facebook details how it breaks each principle of data protection law. Everything it does to our data is illegal. You're not allowed to have an internal data free-for-all, end quote. Well, the, you could drain the lake, the entire lake, or have it evaporate, and then you could scrape up the leftovers of the ink from the, the lake bed, put it back into the jar, Put some water in there to make it not dry. Or you so basically, just regulate Facebook out of existence, which would be a fun yeah. Thing well, to do. Uh, <laughs> leaked documents from Facebook are always interesting. 
I almost said they are fun, but there's not nothing fun about this. It's like a if you had were watching an episode of Black Mirror. Yeah, the solutions that you're suggesting, you know, would work as analogies, but even you know, practically, it mentions right there in the article that um, how much it would cost to fix the mess. So, so basically, they are creating Skynet. And they have no control over what it does with the data. Pretty much. Yeah, yeah. I'm for it. We should bow to our digital overlords. Okay. Linux FX11 contains code which dumps all user data to who? And this is from kernel.eu. The FX keys table contains the metadata for all registered pro licenses for Linux FX, consisting of the license key, email address, and some other stuff. Expiration, quantity of machines, license, etc. The machines table contains the metadata for all Linux FX installations that have phoned home for the first time. It contains the IP address of the machine. Some other metadata ripped off an IP geolocation service set by the client. And the license key, if activated. There's only over 20,000 entries in this file. A far cry from the 1 million number claimed by the company. With this information, anybody can correlate an activated installation along with its IP address with its owner's email address, which is not good. A YouTube video by DistroTube states that they fixed it and made it worse. Full details in this article update. And we have both linked here in the show notes. A little background info on this. LinuxFX is a distro that is geared toward the people who might move over from Windows. And it's even themes like, themed like Windows. And I think it just uses the stock Windows 11 wallpaper. And they have a on various... Uh, and they have various uh, proprietary software pre-installed like Chrome, which users moving from Windows might need. So, and apparently there are 20,000 users who have registered their system because apparently it also has that in common with Windows that you have to register your installation. So apparently these 20,000 people who provided their uh, email addresses could, in and it was were just stored in this, my, in this MySQL uh, database that this person who exploited this could just retrieve very easily, which is not a very good look. Right. DistroTube actually shows in this video, uh, you go to this web page and it not only lets you log in, it gives you all the login information to that database. Okay. Oh, yeah. Norbert? A major security issue affecting Firefox and its derivatives has been patched. And this is uh, from the Mozilla.org website. Uh, two vulnerabilities have been found that enable harmful websites to steal user information. So these are CVE 2022-1802 and CVE 2022-1529. The first one is a prototype pollution in top level of 8 implementation. Second one is an untrusted input used in JavaScript object indexing leading to prototype pollution. So these are very similar and they are all related to JavaScript. And JavaScript is the most common way 
that websites can infect uh, browsers or systems. And uh, this uh, this affects essentially Firefox and all of the browsers that are based on it, including the Tor browser. And uh, this rules that rely on the Tor uh, browser, for example, Tails. And uh, these were addressed and these were fixed in Firefox 100.0.2. So if you use a version that is older, you should update. And this is this is one instance when I really I like the. This is one of the cases when I'm really glad that I've switched to the flatpak of Firefox on my laptop because this way when I checked, I was already using this version. And there are short descriptions for these vulnerabilities. First one says, if an attacker was able to corrupt the methods of an array object in JavaScript via prototype pollution, they could have achieved execution of attacker-controlled JavaScript code in a privileged context. So basically, they could just inject whatever they want to the browser and it would run on the browser of the user that is being infected. Second one says, an attacker could have sent message to the parent process where the contents were used to double index into JavaScript object, leading to prototype pollution and ultimately attacker-controlled JavaScript execution in the privileged parent process. So this is not just one, but two very similar vulnerabilities that were patched. And I think the tales the developers of the Tails distro specifically said that they will it will take them a couple of weeks. So I think around the end of May or sometime in June to release a new version of Tails that will have this patch in the Tor browser. But it also, like I said, affects everything that is based on Firefox and it's not yet updated to 100.0.2. So this is pretty serious and it has been fixed. So if you have, if you update frequently, it should be fine. But the takeaway message is that JavaScript is the main way for websites to ex- to find exploits and, and infect you with malware. Okay, and that's it for security. Moving on to the bi-weekly wandering. First up is me. Now, I know I talked last time about my son getting a computer for school. Well, work ended up also giving me a laptop. It's pretty nice, and like I mentioned, it will have to have Windows on it because I don't actually own it. i7, 10th gen, 16 gig of RAM. But since it's not mine and I can't put Linux on it, I'm not very interested in it. I also started making some YouTube videos that I was talking about on the last show. I have one on creating the earbuds that I use to go along with the one that I have about making the headset. This is great because I got to use a bunch of tools that I've been neglecting. Screen copy was a great way for me to get a blown up view of the camera on my phone and still allow my camera to do the recording. I could have used DroidCam and OBS so I could use a different microphone but then I would not have been able to transition from the front camera to the rear camera quickly and easily. Screen copy also allows me to control the phone from the PC, which I find extremely helpful, even just, you know, throughout the day while I'm working. Um, I was also able to switch to screen copy over the network, which means that my phone did not have to be tethered to my computer. 
After the video was recorded, I needed to link together two videos and cut out a long boring section, so I loaded up Caden Live and got the editing all in order. Didn't take very long and pretty easy. However, there was an issue with rendering the video out and my computer locked up twice trying to do it. Which tells me that there was probably something wrong either with my RAM again or with my graphics card. Graphics cards are coming down in price, but right now... So I might look into getting a new one sometime here in the future. So what I ended up doing was I farmed out to one of my laptops to do the rendering. Which took a lot longer, but at least it did finish without a lockup. Now, my desktop, the one that locked up, said it was going to do it in about 12 minutes. And then about the 10 minute mark, it would lock up. The laptop that I used, which is the one I'll be talking about in the innards section, was able to do it in about 45 minutes to an hour. But, you know, major differences between my desktop and my laptop. So, anyways, moving on. My son's Galaxy S3 has started acting very odd. The Wi-Fi cuts in and out, and it doesn't like to install many applications. I've tried doing a complete reset on it and wiping everything out and starting over and still having those issues. Um, I was thinking heavily about rooting and ROMing it and talking about it on the show, but I... I I think it is more of a hardware issue in regards to that networking. Now, that being the case, I'm going to look into another phone for him or something that he can use for his audiobooks and some light games. With his birthday coming up in the next couple of weeks, it seems like a good time to get him another phone for his audio listening enjoyment. I do have an S7 that has been my uh, backup phone. It used to be my primary phone. But it, I, I keep it around just in case anything does happen to my primary phone. And now that S7 is, you know, it's seen a lot of heavy use. But it still looks like it's in really good condition. But it gets a little warm and I need to do a battery test on it to make sure that it's fine. It did spend a lot more time than it should have on a charger. So I want to make sure that didn't do any long-term damage to the battery. You, you can get a Pixel 3a or 3a XL pretty cheap as a used phone, and it's got excellent audio. And I'm talking 80 or 90 bucks, you can get a really former flagship phone. Yeah, yeah, um, I, I'm, I'm aware. I can even pick up uh, another S7 if I really wanted to for under 100. It will depend on some factors, but if I have a phone that will work, then I'm going to use that one before I go and spend 80 bucks. If I do need to buy another one, I will definitely look at the pixels. Okay, Moss, what have you been up to lately? We have procured a somewhat mysterious car for my wife, and the dealer who sold it to us also purchased our previous vehicle, which had developed engine trouble, enabling us to at least pay off the loan. The new vehicle is a 2011 Chevy Cruze, and it looks quite nice, but we are the eighth owner of record for an 11-year-old car. The last two human owners, numbers 5 and 6, used a shop in Knoxville, and that shop was kind enough to print copies of the seven complete work orders they had, which gave us things to look at and ask about. We next found that it needed at least an oil pan seal. The salesman was rather upset that his people hadn't already fixed that, because they were supposed to change all the seals. 
and he agreed to take the car to his mechanic to fix it, and we took it back to him. We should have it back in the next few days, despite the holiday weekend. We also have received the title from our credit union, so we can convey that to him for the Hyundai that he bought from us. I have had lots of not fun with Ubuntu 22.04, which you will hear some about later in the show. I am having trouble getting notes done for the next Distro Hoppers Digest, but I'll come around sooner or later. I've really been skewed this month. Every time I try to get back in sync, something else smacks me and knocks me down again. Sometimes it's money, sometimes it's emotional stuff, sometimes I'm just flat tired. But... Full Circle Weekly News continues to be released on a somewhat regular schedule every week. One just came out this morning. And we will be recording a new episode of Distro Hoppers Digest before the next Mintcast. Norbert, what about you? So, when I have, for a change, I do have some hardware news because I acquired a new laptop, which I don't do very, which I don't do often, but my previous one, which was Alien of Yoga 300, I think. So it, it had a plastic chassis and it, those were notorious for not holding up too well long term. And I, I was the second uh, owner of that. And uh, right now it's being held together by Superglue. And that is not a very sustainable thing. Because a few weeks ago, there was a week when I had to bring it to the university for four days in a row. And I ended up having to re-glue it together at least three times the nights before the days when I had to bring it because it just kept coming because it's because it just wouldn't hold up. Uh, now, sometimes the super glue just holds really well for months. This time it wasn't the case and I just decided to get a new laptop. When I learned about how these first two-in-one Lenovo laptops were, were designed, I swore that I will not get one of these uh, two-in-one laptops again, but I ended up doing it because I just got to spoiled by the touchscreen and being able to use the touchscreen. So now I have a new Lenovo Flex 5, which uh, has an 11th gen Intel i3 processor. So it's a pretty new model. And I have a friend who sells laptops and he assured me that these new ones are supposed to be way, way better built than the old ones. And it has a metal chassis and not a plastic one. So I'm really happy with it. It has the same screen size, 14 inches but it's way smaller because it just has a narrower bezel. It just feels like a modern laptop. My previous laptop was kind of big and it wasn't very convenient to carry it around in my bag, but I can just do it with this one, no problem. And I didn't really have to reinstall any systems because I managed to... So first I had to take apart my glued together laptop. I took out the SSD, connected it to the new laptop and I Leo recommended to use uh, RescueZilla, which I used and I managed to clone my my drive. So all of my partitions were cloned successfully. And well, I had to reinstall Refine because sometimes for some reason it just wouldn't be p- pick up any of the bootloaders, not Refine or Grub that I had on, on the disk. So then I was just able to boot into all, all three distros that I had on it just fine, which is Fedora, Void and Debian. But I didn't have any sound in any of them. So turns out there is a fix for this, and I had to install a couple of packages. One of them was alsa-firmware. Okay, I will have to look this up. While you're doing that, I've noted a lot of differences in quality between different years 
of even the same model of Lenovo laptops. My T540P seems to be really cheap plastic and it keeps breaking, which uh, since it was sent to me by Owen Peary, uh, he was a little upset and I was a little upset that it arrived in a broken condition when it wasn't sent that way. On the other hand, my T560 has polycarbonate and fiberglass mixed body and that's a lot more sturdy. And so, I don't know, Lenovo seems to make different decisions every year on how to maintain their product quality. I don't know. I've just been gravitating towards Dell for the longest time now. Well, I I think I had four laptops altogether in my life. And wait, was it five? It was five. So out of my five laptops, three of them have now been Lenovo's three in a row. So you're still young. <laughs> it's well, it's it's not a conscious choice, but I just I just find that so my previous laptop had really good support with Linux, the touchscreen, everything just worked. So I had this one, and there was no sound. And I looked up uh, a solution, and I found one for Arch, because of course there's always a solution for Arch, which suggested that I had to install a couple of packages, one of them being alsa-firmware, another one is alsa-ucm-conf, and the third one, which is... And the third one, which is sof-firmware. And I tried this in Fedora, and it worked. I tried this in Void and it worked. And for Debian, I found a different solution, which basically didn't require installing any additional firmware, but I did have to go and create a configuration file, which I think it was trying to load the wrong firmware. And I've, I, I think I will leave the link for that fix in the description. I have no idea how many devices are affected, but I did find a bug report for this in the Ubuntu forums, which was from 2020, which is some 2020, so two years old. So there's a bug that was filed two years ago that still affects some devices, which is interesting. So basically, I installed both all of the three systems to be a minimal system, and then I installed my desktops on top of them. So I have no idea if I had just installed a dis- desktop that is ready out of the box, like Ubuntu or PopOS or Mint, or even Fedora Workstation, whether that whether the problem would have still be there. I should try that at some point, but it was an interesting challenge. Joe, my problem with the one Dell that I've had, it had a nice metal body, but it had the worst keyboard I've ever had. And with these fingers, you know I have to have a keyboard. Yeah, I I almost always use an external keyboard. So I said, so in that week when I had to use a laptop at the university each day, and I had to correct the university Wi-Fi, which uh, requires me to authenticate to my account, which doesn't always work the best and I was in Fedora which I was using daily and it just wouldn't be it just fail it would just fail to authenticate me and I didn't really know what was the problem and I just decided to reboot into Debian which I still keep around because sometimes there are things that might only work in Debian and I logged into Debian and I authenticated and it worked fine and I have no idea why, because both uh, systems were using Network Manager. And I gave the same information, uh, same credentials. So maybe it was a different version of Network Manager if something wasn't working properly in Fedora. But once again, having Debian installed saved the day. And it's interesting how each time there's something about having to use my laptop in the university, it ends up me being challenged with something, with a problem that's uh, related to Linux. 
And it turns out Debian testing, which I still use, I plan to use it until it gets to a stable status, Debian bookworm, which will be around next summer, I think. And maybe I will just leave it on, on that, but I don't really, I don't really want to, even if I don't use it daily, I don't want to part with my Debian partition because it just proves to be useful from time to time. But since I moved to my new laptop and I cloned my disk, I found myself in using Void a lot more again, more than any of the other two, which of course I still use with Sway. And I did some, so I decided that Void is, because Void is a minimal system, I might as well have this mindset so that I will create a minimal system out of it. So I installed Sway, the Wayland window manager, and I, I don't really like a tiling window manager on my desktop because I like the way XSE does window management and it, it somehow resonates with me. It remembers how I want things to be placed when I open applications. But on my laptop, I don't really want to open more than two windows at a time on a workspace. So I find it very comfortable that it tires them by default. And I started using a lot more workspaces. Previously, we just use one or two workspaces. Now I sometimes you will use up to four or five. And I decided to finally look at how to configure Waybar, which is the panel at the top for Sway, because the default one was, it, well, it was very color- colorful, but it didn't really feel like something I wanted to use. It didn't really match my wallpaper. So I just turned it to be a completely black bar with white text on it. And uh, white modules like memory usage and time and date and Wi-Fi connection. And once again, I was faced with the problem that Flatpak, when I installed Flatpaks, for some reason, in Sway, on Void, they don't get added to the to the variable that is xdg underscore data underscore dirs, the IRS. And there's a script, there's a couple of scripts in slash etsy slash profile.d. One of them is flatpak.sh. And when you log into your system, it sets up your environment variables. It runs slash at c slash profile and these scripts in profile.d. But for some reason, Void wasn't doing that for me. The terms are that uh, the display manager I started losing and trying out, which is empty with two T's, so E-M-P-T-T-Y, it just doesn't read any of the profile scripts by default. It doesn't run dot x in it, rc. It doesn't run dot profile anything. So I had to set up uh, in my home folder a .emptty file, and I had to specify for it to run slash etsy slash profile and slash etsy slash profile slash d, which I think I didn't have to specify because profile itself defines it. So I edited that, and I opened my applications list, all the flat packs that I have magically appeared. Previously, I had to either start flat packs for the terminal, or just assign a, a, a keybind to them. But now I can just open them like I would open any other application from an application launcher, which is, it feels very satisfying when there's a problem that I caused myself by switching from something that is very simple, let's say for what to use like GDM or LightDM and switching to something obscure that might require more manual intervention. I wanted to switch to this EMPTTY the display manager because sometimes I have trouble with LightDM and and the Wayland sessions. For example, with EMPTTY I can just start a GNOME Wayland session and I think on Void with LightDM I wasn't able to do that previously. So you've heard about distro hopping, you've heard about uh, desktop environment hopping and now <laughs> I did some display manager hopping. 
and it's interesting how I boot into Fedora and have and I have this mindset that it's GNOME, it's really well built, it's polished. Fedora itself is well built and well configured, so I just use it. And then I bo- and then I boot into Void, and it's like a do-it-yourself project. And it feels really great that with each day, I think I had the laptop for two weeks now, and during those two weeks, I managed to implement a lot more functionality into my Sway desktop. And now I've been just using it as my main desktop whenever I don't have to do work, just do other stuff. And I think that's what I wanted to say. So thank you for coming to my TED Talk again. No worries. All right. Moving on to the Linux innards. And today in our Linux innards, we're testing out Ubuntu 22.04. Norbert? And I think I'm the only one who tried uh, stock Ubuntu itself. Well, yeah, we were trying out different things so that, you know... Different flavors. And I wanted to see specifically what Ubuntu did with GNOME 42. And I noticed that the live session is still in Xorg. And the installer is still the old installer, which I appreciated because I could just open the terminal and do the... And run the command ubiquity space dash b which will install ubuntu without installing its bootloader so i can just use my already existing bootloader and the installer was still showing old screenshots from ubuntu i think 21 something so it it still was using screenshots that have the mixed theme which were removed in this version of ubuntu which was interesting because it, it might be a bit misleading it's just it's just a small detail but it was noticeable and so after that, you are dropped into a valiant session because that's a default if you are not on NVIDIA, because it was supposed to be the default on NVIDIA, but then NVIDIA changed their mind in the last minute. But on Intergraphics, it defaulted to Wayland, and they did something interesting with the desktop because by default on GNOME, you not only don't have desktop icons, you if you click on the, if you just have one single window open, you have, if you have a couple of windows open, even if you click on the desktop, like your wallpaper to empty space, the window that is currently in focus will stay in focus. So in other desktop environments and even windows, if you click on the desktop, then the desktop itself will be in focus. So then if you like press the keybind that closes the window, it will bring up the window shutdown menu. But on stock GNOME, it just, if there are some windows on the screen, they, one of them will always be in focus. Now Ubuntu has the had this extension that brings back to window uh, desktop icons for a while but now you can drag and drop icons from the file browser to the desktop and vice versa which you couldn't do before which is i think it it's it was implemented very in a very smooth way and you can even click on the desktop and bring focus to the desktop and bring focus away from the windows which i'm not sure what functionality it holds. Maybe that you can just press Ctrl A and select everything on the desktop, which makes sense. And I don't know if this focus shift to the desktop was doable in previous versions, but this is the first time I've noticed it. And the next thing I did is I looked at the wallpaper selection, because I know that a couple of versions ago, I think it was in Hersuit Hippo, they had a really low number of wallpapers. And for each version, they have a different set of wallpapers, but they don't seem to keep the previous ones. If you install a, dis- a distro like PopOS, it has dozens of great wallpapers. And from version to version, from release to release, they don't remove from the wallpaper selection, they just add to it. 
So Ubuntu has a different wallpaper pack for each release. So there are packages like Ubuntu-Wallpapers-Jammy or Ubuntu-Wallpapers-Hersuit or Impish. But each version only has its own wallpaper pack installed, which maybe has like six or eight wallpapers. So a couple of those are the stock wallpapers, the default wallpapers with the mascot and all of the release. And there are a couple of other ones, usually photographs or renders. And I think it's a shame because there have been a lot of great wallpapers in previous releases that just didn't stick around for the new releases. So I brought up the terminal and I did an apt install ubuntu-wallpapers-asterisk, which installed like 10 or maybe a dozen different wallpaper packs. It took up 200 extra megabytes, but there really are a couple of great wallpapers in there. So what I would like to see in Ubuntu is just to have a wallpaper pack that's called Ubuntu-wallpapers-common, which just include the release generic wallpapers. So if you install like Ubuntu-wallpapers-impish, maybe it could just have the wallpapers that have the impish entry on them. And all of the wallpapers that are not tied to any release, they could just be dumped into one single wallpaper pack so that you could have a couple of dozen nice wallpapers and not just have like two or three new wallpapers for each release. Because if you, like I said... Now, w- w- what command did you use to install? apt install ubuntu-wallpapers-asterisk. I like that in apt you can just use asterisk, so it will install all of the packages that start with ubuntu-wallpapers. But in I think in other win- uh, other package managers, you're not able to do that. So this is something I'm missing from like Pac-Man or DNF. So I don't, I don't have the machine that I have Ubuntu right now here, but there's a, there's a lot of photographs, for example, that are just nice. And I I don't think they should be removed from version to version just because I don't really, I don't actually know why. I don't actually, I don't actually know why they remove wallpapers. Well, you probably can't do this in Arch, but in one of your RPM things, you would always install app2rpm. Okay, so while Joe is looking things up, I I started the Firefox snap and I started my stopwatch and it took 13 seconds to start on my 6th generation i5 I CPU. So I used my old laptop to do the distro testing. And on the second start, it took around 3 seconds to start, which is not bad. I mean, 13 seconds isn't that bad either, but it can be annoying. And so we mentioned that support for the standard compression is getting better and I'm wondering maybe if in the future all of the distros will use a fire system by default that compresses stuff. Maybe compression just wouldn't have to be implemented for snaps separately and maybe that would improve startup time for snaps. But I wanted to install flat packs but I didn't get around doing that because I just tried out a couple of apps that are uh, snaps and the Ubuntu software center itself which is a branded snap store i di- for some reason i didn't notice this before but in the drop down list where you can select different branches of the, the the snaps like stable or development or beta there's actually an option for the deb deb package at the, at the bottom so for some reason i didn't know that you can still install the deb packages from the repos via the ubuntu software center but it turns that you can but of course it defaults to the, flat, uh, to the snap by default I mean, that's understandable because those are more up-to-date. And even distros like Fedora usually default to the flatback if there's a flatback of an application. And I, and I just went and updated the software. And it started updating the snaps. But then I got an error message that said the snap store itself was not able to update itself because it is running. So I had to close the snap store for it 
in order for it to be updated, which was interesting because I thought if snaps are always loaded to memory, they could just update and download the new version. And the next time I start it, it will just start a new version. But for some reason, it wasn't able to update itself until it was running. And I assume that wasn't a bug. That is how it's implemented. It was just interesting. And GNOME itself, I was surprised to learn that GNOME 42 has fractional scaling enabled by default. Fractional scaling in GNOME is interesting because if you are running a Wayland session and Wayland native applications, you can set your screen to 125, 150, or 100, 175%, not just 100 or 200. And things scale nice. And I actually turned on fractional scaling and tried it again on my Fedora tablet because 200 is too big and 100 is way too small. Even 150 was too small, but I settled for 175%. And things don't really look blurry. Because, of course, Firefox is a Valiant native app, even as a flatpak. But if you try to run a, an X app by X Valiant, you might get some pixelation or blurriness if you're using uh, fractional scaling, which of course is not enabled by default. GNOME is still considered to be experimental. So I was surprised to learn that Ubuntu just enables it by default. And I mentioned this to Leo because I know that uh, his uh, framework laptop needs fractional scaling because of its resolution. And he did say that he tried it as well in Ubuntu and he did also see some, encounter some problems with apps that are not well native apps. So, if we arrive to the point where everything works natively in Wayland, maybe this will be less of an issue. And I really hope that in a couple of releases, GNOME will enable this by default, which, which, because it's something that I would really like to see. Even on a 1080p screen, like a 14-inch screen that I have, I never use fractional scaling, but maybe it would be beneficial. I know that my dad uses Windows 11, and he has, I think, his laptop just set it to 125 the scaling to 125% by default. And it's 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 it was it what it's what work, works best for him. So maybe having a like 125% scaling would be beneficial for people. But other than this version of Ubuntu feels a lot more polished than the previous versions. And I'm kind I'm kind of sad that they didn't get Pipewire ready for this release. But it also makes sense that they didn't want to risk having Pipewire introduced as an audio server in an LTS because in the interim releases they have time to sort things out. And they, I also assume they have a little catching up to do with Fedora's and Tumble and uh, OpenSUSE's and Arch's implementation of Pipewire. But I really like the fact that they are working toward having Valent be the default on NVIDIA. So maybe in, in the next release or the release after that we will also see that. All around, my only problem is the loading time for snaps, which I imagine a lot of people have that. For a lot of people, that's the main problem they have with Ubuntu. So if that was solved, I I could use it without any problem. No, I know that's being worked on. Yeah. I know that they, I've heard that they want to do a major overhaul on how, how snaps work, which I'm all in for, because, I mean, as much as people like to hate on snaps, I would rather have snaps improve then just die because it's good to have options. And if there's a packaging format that could, that has a potential to be, to improve, I think they deserve all the chances that, well, that the user base can give them. Are you all done? Yeah. I wanted to try Ubuntu as well, just because I like XFC, but I haven't. So 
It's all your zero. Well, I installed the Mate version because I like Mate way more than I like GNOME, uh, even though I haven't used it in a really long time. I would have gone for cinnamon, but the cinnamon Ubuntu or the Ubuntu cinnamon is not an official flavor, and I wanted to make sure that I used an official flavor. The install was pretty easy, and I didn't have any major issues with that. It was hardly noticeable, just a regular standard install. I did notice what I have to assume is some theming issues in regards to applications that I installed, but I'll get to that in a few minutes. Now, I think it is a function of Mate as opposed to Ubuntu, but I did notice that uh, it wasn't very intuitive to pin things to the panel bar. I had to right-click, add to panel, application launcher, and then find the correct application as opposed to just right-clicking an application and hitting add to panel. Now, Moss informs me that there is a much more intuitive way to do it. You can open the menu and just click and drag an apps icon to the panel. He says it works in most desktops, but it's easier in Mate than he has found it to be in other desktops, XFC, LXQT. But um, for me, it just wasn't very intuitive. I think I just got too used to Cinnamon, you know, find the application, right-click it, and add to panel or pin to panel, and you're done. So maybe that's just on me, but it was something, it doesn't seem very intuitive to me. The difference is that when it works, it means that the, on the panel, the applet that shows the open applications also serves as a quick launch menu. So if you pin something it, and you have no windows open, it will just serve as an icon to start it. But on XFCE, you could like add icons to the to quick launch icons like a Mate, but the applet that shows your open windows, you are not able to pin those there. Those just show the open windows. Right. So if you want it, so if you had pinned, if you had Firefox and the five browser pinned and you had a window of each open, there you would see two Firefox and two five browser icons. For XFC, there's a new applet called the Dock-like taskbar, which is already a default in MX Linux, and I think they're working on upstreaming it to be the default in XFC itself. So XFC will have the uh, option. I'm using it in XFC because it's just a very nicer experience. But I think they wanted to make it default so that you can do this, just do the right-click and pin to the, the, the panel in XFC. I don't know how it works in Mate, though. With Ubuntu Mate, you have two panels, one at the top and one at the bottom, and your active applications are at the bottom, and all of your data stuff is at the top panel, including anything that you pin to panel will be at that top panel instead of at the bottom panel with your running application. Yes, but there are still different layouts, so because there are single panel layouts... I'm talking about the stock layout. Now, I know, like Moss, we had a conversation about this, he deletes that top one and just puts everything you on the bottom. You can combine the two panels so. and put it top or bottom as you wish. What I wanted to say is like an XFCE, if you use the click on and add to panel like you were doing in Cinnamon, it puts the application all the way on the far right instead of over on the left with the rest of your apps. And you have to then go in and move it. And yes, you can do that. Yeah, because it, in Mate, you just, I, I just got to the use to just doing the drag and it works great. Now, even if it was on the right, you know, as long as there was something there for me to quickly click instead of having to open the menu every time, that, that, that's kind of what I want. And now, I also installed several applications to start out with. Um, I installed VLC. I installed X2Go Server and Client, both. And then I also installed Caden Live and Chrome. SSHFS worked without an issue and without me having to install anything else, just 
typed in the command, and I was able to mount everything from my server. Now, one thing that I noticed while transferring files onto the device is that the Wi-Fi would drop and then pick up every few minutes. But I have no way of knowing if that's a hardware issue or not. Now, I know it's not an issue with the Wi-Fi module because um, that Wi-Fi module was previously in one of my uh, tablets and worked just fine. But this laptop that I put it on does have some type of power issue where it's not working correctly from the battery. I know I've mentioned that on the show before. So if it is having some type of power distribution issue, maybe it's just not sending enough power to that Wi-Fi adapter. So I removed this issue from the equation by switching to my port replicator that was a previous project and is normally used for my Pies that has uh, an Ethernet built in. Vast improvements, didn't have to worry about the network dropping while I was doing an update or an install or transferring files or anything like that. While using Caden Live, I noticed that in the menus I could not read anything due to the color of the text and the color of the background. This was a theming issue that uh, became less of a problem when I switched away from the stock theme. Um, the version of Caden was a different one from the one that uh, installs in the Mint depots. I also installed Barrier on my laptop and my garage computer, which is the one I'm using right now. Barrier is a fork of Synergy, if anybody remembers that. And it's a virtual KVM. It allows me to use a single mouse and keyboard on two different systems, or many different systems if I really wanted to, and have in the past. Uh, what I noticed is that on Ubuntu, the Snap was installed, and on uh, Mint, the Deb installed, which was a previous version, so they would not work together. Now, I could have gone in and, you know found the correct repo and added that to Linux Mint and then got that running with a deb. But it was just much easier to force the snap to install on Mint and then everything worked as expected. I can just slide my mouse all the way over to the right side of my screen and through the side of the screen into the other computer. Did you install it, the, the snap of it from the Mate uh, app boutique? No, I used the command line. Was there a deb at all for it in the Ubuntu repos? I don't know. So maybe if there was, it could have worked with the deb on Mint. Maybe. Okay, and now I set the laptop up on the table, which is connected to my theater chair that I'm sitting in right now and that I use for work. And um, I'm able to use both my regular desktop that I use for work and the laptop at the same time. It's really kind of convenient when I just need to do something small and I don't need to take up any more screen real estate on my main computer. So I do highly recommend that you try out Barrier if you are running multiple systems. Okay. Moss? Uh, yeah. Am I supposed to wake up and say something now mm, or no, make me a I, pot I of coffee pass the coffee through the screen joe it's well, a bit come far over the house. waiting for a while are you paying we'll, for my we'll gas wait. i guess that depends <laughs> on how good the coffee is anyhow i have so far installed mate lubuntu unity and ubuntu studio some of my responses will be covered more thoroughly in the next edition of distrohoppers digest as everyone knows by now, I am one of those filthy multi-booters. 
As such, my greatest disappointment was the inability to install and use Grub Customizer. Apparently, some library got orphaned, and rather than fix Grub Customizer, or adopt the library, or make something new, they just dropped it from the repo, and you can't install it from Debian's repo either. Manually editing Grub does just not get the job done here, and I have not even been successful installing and running Refind. I assume Norbert has something to say on that, but it just doesn't run. I installed it. Well, all I have to say is that I had to reinstall Refind, but for some reason, every time I tried to install Refind from a live system, it wouldn't install properly. So I did what I usually do. I usually just install Refind when I'm installing either Void or Arch or Fedora. And I, for Void and Arch, I just, um, I just install it when I'm in the CH root. So I just, because I didn't have Arch on it, I just had Void Fedora and Debian, I just installed Arch on it and chirruted into it and I installed Refined. So right now I don't have three, I have four distros on it. So I might be coming for your record of having five distros at the same time. On, <laughs> oh, on that's machine. not my record. I that's might not be coming for a record. record. <laughs> oh, what, what, what's your record? Uh, at one time on the, um, on the Kudu 3, I had... Uh, eight distros and I was actually expanding it to 12. No, I had 10 distros and I was going to expand it to 12. And while I was doing that, I gave up and uh, contracted it to eight. Uh, it wasn't any frustration, but t- I think 10 is my record, although I had 12 partitions on, on the Kudu. Okay, so I only have one drive in it, and I so I might not be able to afford to have more than... This was five. on a single one terabyte SSD. Okay, I only have a 250 or 240 five gigabyte is good. SSD. So I, <laughs> I might not be able to uh, break your record, but I could try. I will probably not, because I just can't afford to partition it up to that If many you're keeping partitions. your data externally, you don't need even as much as 20 gigabytes for a distro. So maybe maybe have a separate uh, partition for your data that you access from all your all your other uh, installations, but uh, you you don't need as much as twenty gigabytes for a distro installation. I actually have 20, 20 gigabyte root partitions, three of them. For Arch, I just gave ten gigabytes because I just wanted to install it to get my bootloader working again. I didn't really I want to use it. So I do have, uh, I think I have space for like 7 20 gigabytes partitions, maybe not even that, maybe like 5 or 6. Okay, I decided not to pursue breaking <laughs> okay. your records. You can have your record of I'm not sure systems. it's any record, but it's my record. Anyhow, Lubuntu has frequent desktop flashes, sometimes slower or faster depending on what app I was in which apparently can only be solved by enabling a Compton-like compositor. It's, it's supposedly already installed, but I haven't found where in the menus it is. I also hate being nagged to save my files as if I had any open when I go to reboot or shut down. That is a very big issue with me in Lubuntu. It always feels like it's not complete, but I haven't found out in what way it is not complete. It seems to do everything I ask it to do. It just feels empty for some reason. All of my simple games install on 22.04, but PySol FC does not open in any flavor I've yet tried. You can click on the icon in the menu and nothing happens. I have not been able to find out where it goes. It installs, it, the icon shows up, and it doesn't run. Okay, Unity looks good, but apparently still has bugs. DistroTube did a good video on it. I have a link in the show notes. Hoping to really like it, but finding some flaws. 
Matei gave me some real trouble refusing to boot after installation. It turns out it created its distro partition as EFI rather than as EXT4. When I changed that, it wouldn't install at all because it couldn't find an EFI partition. When I created a small EFI partition, it did install, but Studio still held the grub and would not recognize the EFI partition, so it still wouldn't run. So I installed Mint on another partition, used Grub Customizer, and it all works now. I do not understand why Studio did not demand an EFI partition, but Matei did, but that's what happened. Firefox opens very slowly, no matter which flavor, due to it being a snap. Uh, Norbert already discussed the exact times. I, all I know is it's slow, and I don't like having to wait. To s it's so slow that I wonder if I clicked it, and I usually open two or three packages trying to get it to open. Anyhow. So I wonder if you installed Flatpak, and then you installed the Flatpak compatibility plugin for GNOME software. Would Flatpaks show up in the Ubuntu Software Center? Because the Ubuntu Software Center itself is a snap. So if I wanted to use Flatpaks, what I would do is if I would install the regular DAB for the GNOME software and have Flatpaks in that. And if I don't want to use Snaps, I might try removing the Snap Store, which is Ubuntu software. I have no idea whether that breaks system updates or not. I'm very much interested in looking at Rudra's little package where he actually comes up with a independent app store that includes Snap Flatpaks and uh, Ubuntu uh, repo. Yeah, those are great. There are even some very there are even some projects that have app images, uh, flatpacks, and snaps, but no no uh, native packages. But using something like that and then having snaps or flatpacks in the default file uh, software center might if be they redundant. are properly identified, so you know which one you're installing. It would be interesting. I should try and uh, integrate flatpacks into Ubuntu twenty two or four itself and see whether the regular Ubuntu store can handle them or I not. would like to revisit all these things in 2204.1 to see if they fixed anything. But that's it for me. That makes for a pretty quick entrance. I'm happy. All right, then let's move on to Vibrations from the Ether. The first one we have from Matt Rice it says, Guys, first and foremost, I just want to say that I love the show and have been a listener for a couple of years now. I've been running Mint as my daily driver on my home, work, and laptop computers. I'm not a new Linux user, and I'm not really a distro hopper either. I've heard slash seen slash read that Mint is a, quote, beginner, end quote, Linux operating system. This bugs me. It's Linux. If I load Fedora, Arch, or any other distro with my favorite desktop, Cinnamon, what difference does it make under the hood? I mean, I chose Mint because it just works. I have the ability to try all the other distros easily by swapping drives or in a VM. I don't see what makes any other distro better than Mint. Would love to hear your thoughts on the show. Say hi to Bill for me. He is a fellow Fort Wayne resident. Signed, Matt. Well, Matt... I have to agree with you that uh, there's really not much difference under the hood. I mean, there's some philosophical differences between, say, Ubuntu and Linux Mint, but it's marginal. But yeah, it, it really is the same. The difference is is that a lot of your other ones 
are more difficult to use in some cases as opposed to just working. But if you want to talk about under the hood stuff, I think if you want to compare something like Linux Mint or Fedora, maybe the underlying system, so the package format that the system uses, and also because they are packaged by different developers, maybe security updates might, uh, might arrive at a different rate. And even feature updates, because if you want the updates, feature updates for native packages that are not flex, flex or snaps, Fedora will have feature updates, but uh, Linux Mint and Ubuntu will not. And Right. I mean, you could get down to the nitty gritty and say, you know, Fedora uses YUM, Arch uses AUR, etc., etc., etc. But essentially, they're all and sitting like we on top of the Linux And like we were mentioning a few kernel. episodes ago that and they're all uh, Linux. over the years, Clem gets slammed for this or that or the other thing, but the longer time goes along, the more it looks like he makes the right decisions. Another important difference, I think, difference, I think is uh, support. Uh, how long a release has support. Because Ubuntu LTS releases and therefore Mint releases have five years of, of regular uh, support and uh, security updates. And they have released, so Mint has releases every two years. Fedora is a much faster moving project. It has releases every six month, months and uh, each release has only 13 months of uh, support time. So you could... you, you could ab- Arch, you're doing it all yourself. Yeah, Arch basically doesn't have version numbers at all. You just have small updates each day. But with Fedora, basically, you could update every six months to a new release. You could skip every other one and update update. Well, yearly, but Mint has every six months, roughly, and easy upgrades from one to the next. And on top of that, uh, it has long-term support for all of their versions. Yes, but the main repo, the Ubuntu repo, doesn't change for the Mint uh, six-month releases. Which it makes it less likely to break, I guess, if you were to upgrade from like min twenty to twenty one. But in the end, it, it's a matter of personal preference. I mean, there are reasons to use Arch. I mean, if you need absolutely bleeding edge for your graphics or whatever, then yeah, maybe Arch is a good way to go. But yeah, I mean, you're gonna have problems and you're gonna have to, you know, fix it yourself. But that's part of the price you pay, and maybe it's worth it to you. If you really want your system to break, you should use any distro, but use the experimental repos. Nobody picked the second letter. Someone should read it. Joe, I think you've been underrepresented today. Okay, and this letter is from Bob Belk. I just listened to this podcast, and your network performance specs on the RPI are dated and not accurate. The RPI 3B Plus was fitted with a 1GB network plug that was limited by the USB 2.0 backbone to about 230 Mbps. The 4B has been tested to be about 940 Mbps. Enjoy your show, Bob. Thank you, Bob. And yeah, we did not get into the specifics on um, what the networking was for the 3B and the 4B specifically. So thank you for the exact And for anyone not following that. it, RPI um, is Raspberry Pi. So now I, I do believe on that show we did mention that the um, one gigabit network plug on the 3B was limited by the USB 2.0 backbone because, yeah, it shares with the USB. Now, I don't know specifically on the 4B if it's got its own, then it would be 940 Mbps. But even... But if it is 
on the same backbone as the USB, then anytime you're doing heavy USB usage, wouldn't that also impact how fast the uh, network connection is? I'd have to look it up. Or get back to us again. Hey, Bob, if you want to come on the show and talk about it, I'm cool with that too. Always happy to do another pie show. Unless somebody else has something to add there. All right, we're going to move on to check this out. And Moss? First thing that came up was Stuart Langridge has uh, published his latest version of Hushboard, which technically will mute your mic while you're typing so people don't hear clackety-clackety-clack. I have installed it and it doesn't seem to work for me, but I think uh, Norbert said he was going to install it and it didn't seem to work for him, but it's nice. Nice that people are looking at it. I installed it too, and because it's a flatback, I thought maybe we should look at look at its permissions in FlatSeal. And there's a toggle on FlatSeal that says permission to all devices like webcams. So I, I assume that must include the microphones as well. So I turned that on, restarted uh, Hushboard, and it still didn't work. Maybe we missed something. Maybe we didn't start it properly. Well, if anyone else wants to check it out, then they can get back to us at how it worked or didn't work for them. Yeah, because it's nice because then if I'm talking to someone, they, they wouldn't have to hear this. Yeah. The other thing I have here is Pika Backup. That's P-I-K-A. It's the 9 to 5 Linux Flatpak app of the week. It seems to be an easier to use backup system. It looks prettier than, say... Whatever else you're using, it's yes, also it's a GTK circle app. app. So yeah, and those generally look nice because first when the GTK4 and Libot Beta came out, they had this really nice and modern flat gray theme, but the gray might look a bit boring. But then there are a lot of GTK4 apps keep coming out that sort of defy this conception of GTK just being boring and and gray because I have another uh, GT I have another GNOME Circle app here which is the Emerald Music Player that I mentioned in the news which is just it's just great it looks and feels like a GTK4 app but it also changes the entire color scheme of the whole window based on the album art of the song that you are playing and it's really nice so I really like how there's an influx of really nice well, looking Pika GTK4 is available apps. from the FlatHub repo or from Gnome Software or Plasma Discover or your distro's app store. So there's that one. And so is Emberall. Joe? Okay, and I have a link for a YouTube channel that I just recently found. It is called the Linux Experiment, and they have... Linux tips, reviews, games, and news. It's basically a weekly or, in some cases, bi-weekly news show on YouTube. So if you don't get your all of your Linux news through audio, you know, from uh, Moss's other show, then I highly recommend checking this out. Uh, the couple of uh, videos that I've watched from them, about 20 minutes in length or less, 
I have been really good. And yeah, I'm looking forward to this next week's episode. It was the very first Linux-related channel that I found when I switched to Linux. And Nick, the guy who's running it, it just, it just really, it's just very enjoyable to hear, to listen to him talk. And he... And he does present very well. He also did videos, uh, like topic, he also does a lot of topic-based videos, like uh, is uh, what is the future of GTK theming and uh, is Linux, is it, is how, so he addresses, so sort of like video essays. I really enjoy those. I haven't watched, I only recently started watching his news, news show a few weeks ago, and it sort of became my number one source of Linux news because I found that he just finds and covers a lot more stuff that other news shows, Linux shows that I've listened to do. So I can I can recommend it as well. All right. And that's it for Check This Out. And now for our housekeeping and announcements. Thank you for listening to this episode of Mintcast. If you see something that you'd like to hear about, tell us. Send us an email, mintcast at gmail.org. Join us live on YouTube. Post at the Mintcast subreddit. Chat with us on Telegram or Discord or Facebook. Or post directly at mintcast.org. We would like volunteers to help with audio editing as we are very far behind at this time. A list of episodes needing work is being prepared at this time. Experience in editing multiple Audacity streams will be helpful. And you can get with us on uh, either Telegram or Discord to let us know if you want to help. Our next episode will be at uh, 2 p.m. U.S. Central Time on June 12th, 2022. We do have a link in the show notes to convert that to your time zone. Our next live stream will be at 2 p.m. U.S. Central Time on June 4th, 2022. And we also have a link to convert that to your time zone. Live stream information is at mintcast.org slash livestream. And now for our wrap-up. If you like the sound of my voice, you can catch me on a couple other podcasts that I'm on. I'm on the Linux Link Tech Show, which you can find at tllts.org. I'm on the Linux Lugcast, which is at linuxlugcast.com. You can send me an email directly, jb at mintcast.org, or you can buy me a coffee using my Kofi link. Moss? Well, you can hear more of me at Full Circle Weekly News on DistroHopper's Digest. My email is bardmoss at pm.me. My contact information otherwise is found on itsmoss.com. Norbert? You can send me an email at norbert at mintcast.org and we have a little update on the situation where we thought we would have to migrate our stuff from... We thought we would uh, not have access. We wouldn't be able to keep our mintcast emails because of the changes with the Google workspaces, but turns out we we can keep them. So we will just, we, we will just be able to send uh, emails to these. Uh, addresses and mincast at mincast.org will also be the we'll, we will also be able to use that thank you bill yep bill is also working on migrating us anyway just in case this happens again in the future that way we have at least two systems that we can work with and bill wasn't able to make it onto the show today because he went on a vacation but if you want to reach him you can get him at uh, wchauser3 at gmail.com 
or Bill underscore H on Discord or at WC Hauser 3 on Twitter and WC Hauser 3 on Facebook also. And you can check out his other podcast, Three Fat Truckers at 3FTPodcast.org. Nishant was also not able to make the show today. And if you want to send him an email, you can send him at nishant at mintcast.org. You can send him uh, something on Instagram using ReconGhost or ReconGhost at GitHub, ghost.recon on Discord, Maverick00783 on Steam. Now, before we leave, we want to make sure to acknowledge some of the people who make Mintcast possible. Norbert and Tony H. for our audio editing. Also, I think Owen's done some recently. Josh Lowe for all his work on the website. Hobstar for our logo. Init RD for the animated Discord logo. And Londoner for our time sync. Archive.org for hosting our audio files. The Linux Mint development team for the fine distro we love to talk about. Thanks, Thanks Clem. Clem. Thanks, Clem. This has been another episode of the Mintcast podcast. The show notes for this episode are at mintcast.org. You can send us email at mintcast at mintcast.org. You can find more information about Linux Mint at www.linuxmint.com. You can follow both Mintcast and Linux Mint on Twitter, at Mintcast and at Linux underscore Mint. Thanks to Mark Blasco at podcastthemes.com for our theme music, and thanks for listening to this episode of the Mintcast.